Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors Inn. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined, and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. My name is MD Hawk. I am a pre-med student in New York City. This podcast features a wide range of proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender, and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. To no further ado, let us unwind the journey of medicine and life together. Three, two, one, and we are live. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Doctors Inn. For this very first episode, today I have with me Dr. Dara Cass. She is actually a very special guest, and I hope to do her some justice with my brief introduction of her career summary. So Dr. Cass was born and raised here in New York City. She graduated from SUNY Downstate Medical School and finished her residency at King Sunny Hospital. She is currently an attending emergency medicine physician. Dr. Cass is the founder and CEO of FemNM, which serves a blog and conference with a mission to promote gender equity in emergency medicine since its inception in 2015. She's currently the treasurer of Gender Equity in Medicine Research Foundation, which is a nonprofit that conducts and supports gender-based research. Dr. Cass also serves as the director of Equity and Inclusion Initiatives at Columbia University Medical Center. She is a medical contributor and advocate at Yahoo News. Due to her major contributions as an emergency medicine physician, she has received the 45 Under 45 EMRA Award, amongst many others. You can find Dr. Cass on the Feminine website or... You can follow her on Twitter at Daracass, which is spelled D-A-R-A-K-A-S-S, where she has over 42,000 followers. Trust me, you will not be disappointed with her feed because she will keep you up to date with the most recent COVID stories with a sprinkle of her charismatic personality. Without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Cass to the inn. Good morning, Dr. Cass. Thank you so much for coming to Doctors Inn. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. This is a that was a robust introduction, and I'm excited to be here. That's very great to hear. Thank you so much for being the very first guest of this podcast. I love all the work you do, and I am absolutely thrilled that you are here. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good, actually. Um, I'm excited to do this this morning. These are my f- most fun things to do. Like. In, you know, talk about what we've accomplished, but more importantly, like get young people excited about the future, especially now of what they can do and how they can help like change the world. I love what you just said, because that is exactly why I wanted to have you on as the very first guest, because not only do you place emphasis on your own work, but you also want to incorporate young people and undergraduates through motivation. Yes. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So aside from being a practicing physician, you also founded and play a major role in feminine. Do you mind telling us a little bit about it and how you got started? What was the push that kind of gained momentum up for the idea of the need for more representation of females in emergency medicine? So uh, Feminem started because of the idea that there were women in emergency medicine. And, um, you know, in, in the House of Medicine, we've seen about 50% parity uh, from matriculation into medical school, so admission, since the 80s. And that was mostly related to the Title IX uh, legislation that happened in the 70s. But what we didn't see was really a workplace that was conforming to the needs of all people, uh, specifically the needs of women, and especially as they had, you know, life changing events and or the gender bias they were seeing in either overt or covert ways. And so one of the things I realized was if I could bring together the women in emergency medicine and their allies, and this is my corner of, you know, healthcare, I could really create 
a coalition, a union, a community of people that could support each other through those moments and then create a evolving culture change, a standard that would help support people through you know, the, the moments that they were solving by themselves. And so it started for me when I was having kids because I felt like this was the first burden I had uniquely because I was female uh, and having pregnancy and maternity leave and all that stuff. But realizing that there were so many other issues that were happening that had happened to me that I didn't even notice before I was, uh, you know, pregnant and, and having babies and then brought everybody together. And for me, the solution was not going to be institutional meaning that I didn't want to start something like a club or a committee. I wanted it to be entrepreneurial because I wanted to be my own boss. And I wanted to know that this is going to be a feather ruffling experience. And I didn't think that institutional support, although there is support for equity and inclusion institutionally in lots of different places, I knew that this was going to try to move a mountain and quickly. And for that, I needed to be able to write my own playbook. And so that's why I started my own organization as opposed to just doing the work in the organization I was in at the time. Yeah. And I think you're very successful at what you did and what you started. And to kind of go on that, I love that you put it this way in one of your other interviews. Uh, you said you sort of became a part of the gospel for a woman in emergency medicine. And I love analogies. I think I think that was a very great one. Thank you. So, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so moving on just to a little bit, I think, as you said, the, the start of Feminem was an incredible story and it does show passion for, for a change. And uh, what is really interesting is to see how often startups or for-profit organizations fail within the very uh, first few months of operating. But I think it is evident that you persisted because Feminim is very successful at what it does and it's still standing here today. Nonetheless, I can't imagine the number of obstacles that you had to face while starting Feminim, gearing away from medicine for a little while. Uh, can you just give us an example of one such obstacle and how you overcame it? Yeah. So I think that the interesting part is whenever you start something that needs to pay for itself, right? So nothing is free. It's very hard. You know, there's a difference between a job and a hobby. And um, when you're starting a startup, you need to make sure that you can fund it, that you can support the staff, you can pay the bookkeeper, you can file your taxes. And in order to do that, you have to find a revenue stream. Now, when you're doing something that is a social good, which is what I felt Feminine was, it's very hard to find that place where you can get somebody to support it as a not not as a nonprofit, right? Not through just grant funding. And so finding that um, product was hard. And we had to iterate that over and over again. And we settled ultimately, we started out with some advertising and some website, you know, job postings, but we ultimately settled on a conference. And the reason was that we knew that we could use um, institutional support, which was for continuing medical education, and we could add a layer to education for all people, not just women, that were that that circled around gender equity and being an ally, but really helped push the envelope a little bit. And that conference actually was what became our main revenue stream to allow us to exist. Ironically, with coronavirus, conferences are no longer, like it's in-person conferences are, are, are furloughed, if you will. So now we're figuring out what to do uh, with that and how to keep that going. So it's a continued process. The hardest obstacle for me is not in the community building, not in the organization, not in the message. It's very much in the revenue and making sure that it's, the revenue generation is true to the mission, but still also enough to make sure that the organization can survive on its own without looking for grant funding or other, because there's so many other needs. I felt like I could earn the money myself and wanted to make that one of my goals. Yeah. And I think the kind of 
desire to have a for-profit also allows you to kind of expand your horizon to other non-profits, the, like the research foundation that, that the Feminine is kind of part of right now and in, initiated. Yeah, and we funded the research foundation out of profits from, from Feminine. And the reason we started that and incubated it that way was exactly right, was to pay it forward and to start um, supporting research uh, for you know, gender equity that was small and seed-like so that we could then prove concepts so that larger organizations could then fund larger scale research. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely wonderful how within just five years that such amazing thing is going on. And also you accomplished so much with Feminine and not just Feminine, but with the other affiliate programs as well. So looking through all that you've accomplished and are currently a part of, it actually kind of makes my head spin to imagine the kind of management that is involved. Um, an average Joe or Jane, I think, uh, in your position can become easily distracted or overwhelmed when allocating their times and resources. So my question to you is, how do you determine the priorities of your task? For example, do you have a schedule of your day-to-day life with every five-minute intervals planned out? Or what is it that you do to kind of help you manage all that you're working on? So it depends on the moment. Um, I, for a period of time, was using a, a task management system called Nirvana, hmm. which is a, an offshoot of the getting things done or getting shit done, depending on how you uh, decide to, you know, the interpretation of uh, it has to do with organizational strategies to keep things out of your mind. Uh, it's very hard to remember to remember. And so keeping a way to get things immediately off your out of your head and onto some sort of a platform that you can uh, manage is really useful. You can see behind me, since we're doing a video mm-hmm. in addition to the chat, that I have a big whiteboard. And so when I have a big idea that I need to kind of dump out of my mind, and for me, most recently, this was the digital transformation for our conference that we're having in the fall, I needed to get a lot of information out very quickly and have it somewhere that I could lean into it when I needed to pull out the pieces to execute. And so this will stay on my board for probably the next week as I execute the small pieces to get it done. And the most important thing is I have a very, very robust Google Calendar that is shared by about five people that people can put information in. So when we were scheduling this podcast, I have an administrator that helps me work on a lot of my media and television and podcasting uh, as part of a larger effort to get doctors' voices out there, um, which has grown out of the coronavirus pandemic. And I depend on her and I, I, I allow her to help me schedule my time so that I can not have to worry about that myself. One of the smartest things I learned in growth and in entrepreneurial experiences was to manage the things I had to manage for quality control, but let go of the things that I didn't need to manage for quality control. And so my schedule is not that critical as long as it's done in a way that I can depend on. And so that's probably my best tip right now. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned this. Uh, it goes back to outsourcing, right? Like outsourcing the things mm-hmm. that uh, that you can't really work on because it would just take a lot of your time where you could actually, I guess, shift that focus into something more such as directing another program. Exactly. And it helps me know who I can depend on and know what systems I can depend on. And when they fail, I refigure them and do them again. Uh, but you have to keep figuring out ways to get things off your plate and out of your mind or else you would burn out. Yeah. And one thing that you also mentioned was how you write on whiteboards and you have the Google Calendar. Is this something that you started doing after the, I guess, the entrepreneurial ventures or was this from your residency from medical school? As soon as I started doing more than one job, and I mean that very specifically. So uh, even within medicine, when I was a 
younger attending. So, you know, you do residency, you graduate, you become an attending, and then you have academic pursuits. I actually just stepped down from the director of inclusion and equity at Columbia in my medical school in, in, in the department, but only because I wanted to give that opportunity to somebody else. And I felt like I wasn't doing it the way that I really felt that needed to be done. Um, but even within a department, when you have committee chairs and other jobs, you're constantly task switching between, uh, between spheres, right? Whether it's clinical work or research or writing or, you know, operation stuff. And you need to understand where do you put all that information and cloud-based organization has been very, very useful to me. So whether it's using Microsoft Teams or Slack or Google Drive, whatever you use regularly to keep your content and your communication centralized, um, I think that's really probably the most important thing for anybody that's doing more than just like showing up to work and like running the register at any sort of a service provider. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I just want to move along and kind of uh, ask you about the field of successful people. So there's this notion that many successful people do not go through a transition phase, which is kind of like the phase where uh, their ideas evolve into something new. But um, what people kind of assume that rather their initial plans just work right off the bat. And this notion that successful people touch something and it just automatically turns to gold, I think you can especially attest to the fact that is not the case. Rather, the transitioning or the repurposing of the AWAEM newsletter, which was initially what Feminine was going to be, and kind of it redirected it focus to that. So what I wanted to kind of highlight was that something very solid, which is Feminine, that demanded the change grew out of this newsletter. And I'm sure you had to you know, work hard, very hard, to keep up with the new demands. Can you give us an example of how you adapted throughout the years when you got the grip of, okay, this is where Feminine is, this is where it needs to go, so I need to kind of uh, change and transition these certain ideas in order to fit that and for that to happen? So I think it's really important that there is insight and honestly integrity and humility in how far you can go as a hobby and a side job when you need to pivot it to make it your core purpose. And so Feminine started as a side gig, right? A hobby that I did in addition to being a full-time physician and doing other work. And at some point I realized that it was not just taking more of my time, but it had the opportunity to, to support me in a way that um, my primary academic job couldn't. And I needed to pivot the priority. So I needed to go kind of like full-time to feminine and part-time to the academic job rather than the other way around. And that is um, not easy, especially when you're, when you're looking at academic medicine and you're, and you're deciding that uh, you're going to focus on something that is atypical, you know, entrepreneurial, whatever that is. And not everybody can do it. It's a, it's a difficult transition. But I think that when you do do it and you realize that the rest of the world's been doing it forever, uh, you can only do it, and this is one of the things I say a lot, uh, after you've invested in the foundational work of being really good at your primary job. So one of the things I say a lot, and especially, I don't even know if you're considered a millennial or if there's something after that, <laughs> um, but uh, what we are doing, what I've done, and kind of what other people like me have done, uh, required years of doing something else first. And so when I was in medical school, I was annoyed that all my friends were out having fun and they weren't necessarily working as hard and making more money than me. And, you know, when I was a resident, it was still difficult. And then as an attending, I had kids and I was dealing with all those other kind of social construct issues, but I still was primarily focused on my job as a doctor. So that by the time something else that was really important and pivotal came by and I was able to invest in it and in myself, I could change my focus without losing sight or even skills around the doctor part of it. 
And I think that's something that has to be respected because if you don't do that foundational work to start, then you don't have the opportunities. You know, I, my husband has this term, um, preserving optionality. You haven't preserved that optionality to pivot back and forth. And I think that that's the best thing that you can do in healthcare and in medicine is to preserve that optionality to go back into the full-time clinical practice if everything else fails, which is really a, a benefit that most other people don't have. So it seems that having that optionality allows you to expand your horizon in this sense. Something you just mentioned is how you had to watch your friends have fun elsewhere. Could be at a Hawaiian beach far away while you're studying for medical school and had to work an abnormal amount of hours in a week. Uh, just like me in the past, I believe that some pre-med students who are just starting their journey through undergrad really know the hard work that is involved, uh, which I think you highlighted very well. For us pre-med students, I think it's incredibly beneficial to have physicians like you share their stories in order to understand the work-life balance that is involved yeah, and remembering that, you know, healthcare, and, and if you're a physician or a PA or a nurse or any of those things, uh, can be a very interesting and obviously ridiculously rewarding specialty and ridiculously rewarding life, but it does pose different challenges. So the best example is what happened when coronavirus hit New York City. I mean, as soon as coronavirus hit New York City, everyone like me, meaning the doctors that I was, you know, my people, pivoted to, to downplay everything else in their lives and focus on making sure New York was safe. My friends went home and they hung out with their kids and they watched movies and they really leaned into the inner core of their families. And I moved my kids out of my house. Wow. And so I think that uh, you have to remember that healthcare is a remarkable way to live your life. And it is a remarkable way to give back to society. And it is a rewarding job that is financially secure for the most part. And also generally is a good return on investment of your time and money. But you have a, a, call, a, a calling, it's a commitment to do things at a time when other people can retreat. And it's not to say that we're warriors or heroes, because I hate those terms. I hate the term survivor. I, but it, it is important to recognize that this last six months has shown us that the calling of being a physician right now in America is just different than what it is to be most other jobs, although not all other jobs. There's certainly a lot of other jobs that have been called to at this moment. Wow. The fact that you actually had to move your children out of your house just to keep them safe while also trying to make sure that you're putting yourself out there. And yeah, it just kind of goes back to show the commitment that is involved while you are taking a part of medicine. And it's truly incredible to see that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people that I know around the country... And, you know, it's hard because in the beginning, we all kind of like retreated from our families only because, or some of us did, to keep them safe. And now that it's six months in and not getting better in many places, I mean, we're in New York. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's a kind of remarkable thing to be in New York and have gone through this mountain, like Cuomo says, and on the other side, and see that the work of New York is still very consistent. And we have a governor that's following science. And there's a, yeah. you know, there's a lot of really important things happening in our state. Yet I have friends that live in Arizona and Florida and Texas. And their leadership is not following science, at least not consistently, and their families are still at risk, and they're the ones going and holding the hands of patients that are dying. And it is disheartening, to say the least, uh, to be on the front lines in a world where you, it's like, imagine being a soldier in an army and knowing your general was not really sure, was didn't really have a good battle plan. That's kind of the where they are right now. Uh, and it's, it's hard. Yeah, I can't really imagine the 
it's it's very hard to kind of work with this environment, this new found environment that we didn't really encounter in the past. And it's it's just very hard for us kind of normal folks, non-physicians who are out of the scope. And now we have to understand what's going on. And as you said, physicians are actually now seen as an essential, like it's more of an essential. And I think you as an emergency medicine physician, I don't think there's any better person to ask this. Uh, what was it like from your experience, especially when the first wave hit? So it was surreal, remembering that the entire world was learning at the same time. So when it hit New York, we were uh, right after, I mean, there was China, there was Italy, and then there was New York City. I mean, there was a little blip on the West Coast for a period of time, but nothing like we saw here. And uh, New York, New Orleans, uh, you know, obviously the tri-state area was kind of happening at the same time. But the rest of the country was okay, and they went on lockdown, some of them, and some of them didn't. But we went into this knowing that we were all learning at the same time. We were going to do the best we could. And in that way, we, we did, right? And we started, as we learned things, we asked things of our citizens. We asked people to stay home. We asked them to start wearing masks. And it was very uncertain, but we at least had a humility about the fact that we didn't know anything. And it was, honestly, it was pretty quick. I mean, if you think about what happened in New York, it, we kind of locked down the 16th of March, and by April 15th, we were starting to see the peak of our, uh, you know, kind of death start to recover. And even our hospitalizations, we started seeing a d- decline so that by May 15th, which is only two months, we were really opening up. It was two, it was two months of time that we were really in a bad place. And even... I remember going back to work and it was like April 15th and being patients were already out of the ER, right? We were already like, and the way this disease works, you inundate the frontline providers, you inundate the healthcare system at the front door, and then you stay in the hospital for a long period of time. So even though our ERs were empty, our ICs were full, and we knew we had a long haul of getting those patients admitted, recovered, and really kind of keeping our death rates down. But we knew we were, we were through, we could start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. The part that's killing me about the rest of the country, and I think that this is a lesson that nobody learned, is that if you think about April 24th as being the time that uh, Florida and Texas started opening up a little bit, even May 1st, it is now July and they are just seeing their death rates keep climbing and their hospitalizations climb and their numbers climb and they're hitting numbers we never saw in New York and they're not shut down. And so I don't know what this looks like anymore, right? Like I know what we did and I know if they did what we did, I think it should work because we didn't have um, we didn't have a vaccine. We didn't have treatments. We actually knew much less about the disease than anybody else. Our death rates were terrible, but at least we saw them be affected by our knowledge. What is killing me, and you know, and I mean that metaphorically, obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. is to watch um, my friends and, and colleagues work in an environment that knows better and not do it. And so I think that what it was like in New York, honestly, was it was hard for about, I would say, like a month when we didn't know if it was going to get better and we didn't know what was on the other side. But now looking back, even if it got really bad again, we would know that we have a process that could work. And I believe in the people of New York City more than anything else in the world right now. Yeah, honestly, I I feel like we led a great example um, on kind of how to handle it. And we definitely did dial it down, like in terms of the peak going down again. And also just to kind of go on that, I love your Twitter wallpaper, uh, Stay Home stop the spread, save lives. And if I just may add to the list, and I'm sure you agree based on your feed, uh, wear masks, quote unquote, wear masks. Well, I will say in this process, and this is totally uh, a non sequitur or whatever, I've had three things that I've done in this uh, pandemic that have been, I think, pivotal, but more importantly, interesting. The first was to move my kids out of my house before I got sick. And uh, that was really a lucky guess. 
right? I knew that it was, I had been watching the numbers in Italy. I knew there was a huge intrafamily transmission rate. I have a transplant child and I felt like it would be safest for me to understand this virus without my kids in the house. And I wanted to be able to commit myself to my work. I got sick like five days after starting to see mm. patients and it was, it's, it was a good decision. And I think it looked a little like, oh, she knows what she's doing. The second thing was to write an article uh, in the New York Times and co-author an article about wearing masks. And so we wrote a mask wearing should be a national policy article in the op-ed section April 1st. Now, if you think about that, I had just recovered with the virus. Uh, New York City was in its height of its pandemic. And we were just saying to New York and to the rest of the country, we need to wear masks. We're not entirely sure what it means yet. We knew much less about mask wearing, but this is a good idea. Like of all the ideas we have, this one seems like on the margins, a good one. Let's do it. And, um, you know, it was just when the CDC was changing its guidelines, everyone was like mask wearing, not mask wearing. And I was like, listen, there's not really a downside. Let's just do it. And the third was to cancel overnight camps. And that was really an educated decision. Um, and I wrote an article, in the, again, in the New York Times in an op-ed section about that. The reason why all those are important is it allows us to remember that we don't have all the answers, but it's a continued humility around um, what does work, right? So what does work? Staying home when the virus gets above 10%. And there are states right now with positive test rates in the 20s that are not locked down. What does work? Washing your hands. What does work? Wearing a mask. And if you do that, like we did in New York, you'll save lives. It's the way I say it is it's not rocket science. It's just science. Yeah. Um, what can us young adults or students do to help in this situation? So I think that um, it's really important that everyone is ambassadors of truth. Uh, you know, truth has become a, a dirty word. And I think people are confused about what it means. And, and we don't have absolutes, I think, in this virus because we're learning so much. So recommending best practices, making good decisions while still being humble about the what we don't know, I think is the best way forward. And I think we've seen that in New York. Medical students, college students, uh, you know, learners of different ilks can continue to help translate for their families because in some level you're going to have more knowledge than the rest of your family, even just in understanding the, the articles that are out there and helping people understand who to follow. I mean, you know, social media has been a gift or a curse. I don't know. I mean, watching what's happening on Twitter in the past few days, like we have a lot of intentional disinformation happening out there. You know, the idea that mask wearing is a political stance, I don't really care who you vote for. I care if you wear a mask. If you want to wear a mask that advocates for your candidate and it is not my candidate, mazel tov, you know, have a good time. Uh, I just want people to be safe. I uh, at least by what we know so far, I've gotten this virus. I have antibodies. I don't know that I'll get it again. I could. I don't. We don't know yet. But I wear a mask everywhere I go, and yeah. I'm probably more protected than anyone that's been tested the same day. Yeah. So I don't know why people just won't wear a mask. It's it's not fun. It's just necessary. Yeah. As a physician, your intentions are just to lower the the amount of people that get sick. That's that's literally it. That's you know where it's coming from. Your passion to keep people well and you know healthy. And there is nothing political this, about um, that. Yeah. So this virus, I think one of the things people think and this, the talking about, and this is actually, I mean, just an interesting conversation is that the idea that we're expecting it to be eradicated, right? Only a vaccine when there's no risk. We, we live our life with risk every day. I mean, you know, starting a new business is risky. Going to work and crossing the street is risky. Like we take risks every day. The question is what's reasonable risk and what's our background? What's our, what's our kind of our, our fundamental floor that we're dealing with? In New York City, it looks like seeing five, six, 700 cases a day uh, may be our floor for now of what it looks like to move in New York City, to start moving in New York City and see cases. If we can 
we're doing well in our city like that, right? We're doing okay. And, and in Montana, that may be five cases, right? Because it's a different state and it's a different community, whatever. Um, but we need to live that number and understand it and work with it and, and continue to manage around it and find our businesses around it, educate our kids around it. And so that's what I'm trying to get people to understand right now is that we're not asking for perfect and we can never let the perfect be the enemy of good. We just have to start figuring out where our floor is and then build from there. Yeah, that is very well said. Um, I'm just going to move a little past the non-pandemic days. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What's it like working as an emergency medicine physician? Um, Just, you know, in general, what is one myth you could tell us about emergency medicine that pre-meds who are interested in EM should leave to their hindsight and disregard? So I think the most important thing I think people have learned about emergency medicine so far, uh, people didn't think it was a real job, right? Uh, That it wasn't a real specialty. If you look at all the TV shows, right? Like you saw, I mean, even even with an ER, everyone was going to be a surgeon, used to be a surgeon. Maybe they were an OB. They came into the ER. There was a couple people working there, but it wasn't really the... Like emergency medicine is a specific trained specialty. It has been since the seventies and it is a, you know, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none we say, but it really is the first, you know, it used to be hour. Now it's probably 24 hours of boarding of anybody's care in the hospital. And the thing was, especially with, again, not to pivot to the pandemic, but I think we've shown people that being able to take care of people in that first day while also taking care of the heart attacks and the broken bones and the other fevers and the strokes and everything else is what we do. And that is truly what it is to be on the front lines. And so I think the biggest misconception about emergency medicine is that it's not a specific skill set you have to learn. In a lot of ways, it's an overwhelming skill set because it's constantly changing. But I think that society's learned the value of emergency medicine, which has kind of been wonderful to watch if there's a silver lining of this moment. Um, but I would say respect emergency medicine for what it is. It is its own specialty. I love it. It is. I love it. Yeah. Um, what is one thing about that specific department or just medical practice in general that surprised you when you first started as a, you know, as a doctor? The workplace is incredibly inflexible. And this is a really important thing to remember when you're thinking about the evolving landscape of work in America. Um, we are learning, and again, lessons from the pandemic with children having to be homeschooled, that workplaces are going to have to continue to be remote and be flexible. You know, telehealth allowed us to have remote work in healthcare, but historically the shifts, the schedule, the hierarchy, the promotion structure, uh, the value of academic production has been extraordinarily traditional and really marginalized the, like everyone else, like anything else you had in your life. So if you had any other whether it was your own personal life, whether it was a medical problem for yourself, or maybe it was a you know, complication in your finances or whatever it was, or it was a healthcare issue with your family or something else, that always had to be put to the side to keep working. And I wish for healthcare as a workplace that it becomes a better workplace for people because it has not been historically. Yeah. Um, also, Moving just a little bit forward, um, the field of medicine and actually becoming a doctor is very hard, you know, not just working as a doctor, as you just mentioned, but I think that is also putting it very mildly. It is definitely one of the most difficult and time-consuming fields out there. That being said, what are some of the study strategies that you use to learn all the required information or rather, as the famous analogy puts it, drinking out of the fire hydrant? Right. So I think that, uh, first of all, the amount of information there is available now. I, I did medicine before the internet was a big deal. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I don't, I mean, we saw textbooks and I went to the library to study and that was, it had like three computers like on the like desk area that you checked your email and left. So like, I mean, I, it gives me a bit. Um, I think that it's, you have to, it's a process issue. It's not a content issue. So what you need to really understand is how do you learn? How do you continue to learn? How do you limit the focus of what you're learning? So you could fall into the rabbit hole of information on any single topic and remembering what is your sequence of learning? How do you value your, your information sources? How do you vet them? How do you build your foundational knowledge and then be, get the interesting knowledge? It's distracting, I think, to look for the interesting stuff before you know the building blocks. Um, and so I think that's probably, I mean, we're seeing that all the time in, in social media and in people sharing articles and memes about this virus when they don't have the foundational knowledge of what virology is or what antibodies are or what contagion is. And yet they're talking about, you know, T-cell immunity or aerosolized particles or all these things that are uh, second level or third level information pieces. And they didn't understand biology because they skipped it in school. And so that's what we need to worry about. How, what is your foundational knowledge? Yeah. And also, I think you can offer us something great because you're also a major part of many scholarly work. Uh, so I'm sure you found ways to absorb a great deal of information within a short period of time for research purposes. And you already kind of answered this to to really hone in your process of information intake. Yeah, it's much more about the process. And that's when a skill you can take with yourself long term. Thank you for sharing that. Now, if we can discuss some tough times that you faced as a pre-med student, a medical student, or even as a resident uh, while being a mother, we often hear the term burnout, and you also introduce this term for one of your answers. Um, it seems we will never really understand its detrimental impact until it may happen to us students personally in the future. Also, there might be a greater potentiality of a burnout for a mom who is also doing residency or other jobs. Uh, was there a time where you felt lost and unmotivated or just overly stressed out with all that the path of medicine entails? And if so, how did you deal with it? What was your coping mechanism uh, to stress or better yet, eliminating the potentiality of a burnout? So perspective is really important. I think big picture perspective and small and small skills that you can use to lean on people that are important to you. I actually didn't have my kids until I was uh, attending. I got pregnant in residency and actually had my daughter when I was attending. And the reason is I was really on purpose, actually, for a lot of the reasons that you said, which is that parenthood is very difficult. And um, I knew that I would bear an unequal burden of the, you know, the only one person can nurse, only one person can be pregnant. And so I chose to wait until I could um, focus on that and, and kind of task switch a little bit. Um, but even in college, and I would say in medical school specifically, uh, the focus of learning as a priority when everyone else was starting to have a little bit of fun was hard. Uh, for me, everyone has their, uh, their conflicting uh, priorities. And I wanted to graduate from the hard work. And it's not, you're talking about eight years after college, you're continuing to do hard work while everyone else is just getting a job. And that's a lot of delayed gratification. So for me, it was about understanding why I was doing it. I love emergency medicine. It was the work that was rewarding to me. I would find myself, you know, hanging out in the ER when I wasn't on rotation. And that was, I knew that I was in the right place. So uh, I would say that the best way that I combated work like burnout was to lean into the reasons I had, had started in the first place and kind of just sometimes give myself a break 
but also uh, realized that um, this was what I wanted to do my whole life and I wasn't going to throw away my shot uh, to say, to quote the Hamilton, which we've been watching ad nauseum for the past two weeks since it came up on uh, Disney+. It's a great movie. It's great. My kids are obsessed with it now, which is hysterical. Yeah. Um, so in one of your podcast interviews, you also mentioned that your personality is one that is agentic and not much communal. You brought up something very interesting in regards to that. You said you would be considered bossy because you were a woman. But if a man had the same qualities, they would be considered smart and assertive. Can you please expand a little on this gender bias? Yes. Yeah, so gendered bias around uh, kind of personality and more importantly, decision making is very real. And so there are these qualities called, you know, agentic qualities, decisiveness, aggressiveness, even how you carry yourself or the tone of your voice. And then you expect men historically to have those qualities. And when women have them, you penalize them. And when men have them, it's an expectation. And then there are these communal qualities, right? And communal qualities are things like, you know, caring for others and remembering people's birthdays and, you know, being altruistic. And the best example I can give on this is actually not from me, but from a friend of mine. So I trained in residency under a doctor named Becky Gordon. And Becky was a resident older than me. And she was an incredibly good emergency medicine doctor. All I could see was her skills. And uh, I mean, it just she was amazing. She was a little tough, but you know, whatever. It's all good. And uh, I was like, I want to be like Becky. I, she's like a good doctor. We actually spent September 11th in the ER together. I mean, she was really a rock star. She graduated from residency. She moved to New Orleans. And she transitions to Nick. Who knew? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and what she said is like when she was a resident, and what she said then, what he says now is so when Becky was a resident, Becky got kind of uh, penalized for these qualities of being agentic, being bossy and tough and, and, you know, decisive. And I thought they were great qualities, but not everybody did. When Nick wasn't attending, so transition occurs, it takes a couple of years of, you know, uh, you know, time, and now Nick is a full-time attending, he's been an attending forever, he lives his life, he passes very well, he's got, he just, you wouldn't even know, you would, he just is like, he walks in a room and it's a regular white guy, you know. He goes to work and he's working as an ER doctor and he tells the story of his baby in the room in the small rural hospital in New Orleans or whatever, in Louisiana. And he picks up the baby. The baby's crying. Picks up the baby. The mom is going to do something, whatever it is. The kid's like discharged. I don't know. And he stops the baby from crying, right? And the medics come in the room. Oh, doctor, you're so good with babies. You've like, I uh, can't believe whatever. The mom comes in. Oh, my God. The doctor picked up my baby. And uh, they write a letter to the hospital administration that this uh. doctor, he uh, was amazing with babies. It's amazing to see such a man, you know, care so much about people. And he calls it the Schweitzer effect, which is the idea that when he was, you know, before he transitioned, uh, the qualities he had that were agentic, that were bossy and decisive, were penalized, but his communal qualities were expected, right? And then he transitioned, and now he, you know, is male physician, and everyone, you know, that's at face value, and uh, his agentic qualities are expected, and nobody is, you know, valued, and his IQ went up, and everyone, you know, gave him all kinds of credit, and then his communal qualities, which still exist, are now Nobel laureate quality stuff, right? And that's to me the best example of the catch-22 or the situation around gendered bias because it affects men and women differently. Yeah, You will see, uh, you know, male presenting physicians or male presenting people feel, uh, be penalized for too many communal qualities beyond a scope of acceptability, depending where they are. But for the most part, women in medicine, when they're 
tasked with a job that is agentic, and emergency medicine is. And we've seen this over and over again in research studies about, uh, you know, the the like uh, the scoring. They're called milestones of, are you a good doctor? Um, women residents will sequentially become more worse scorers as they become better doctors because they're doing something that even though the medicine is right, their personality traits are off. And so they can't become worse doctors as a training. Like it's, it's crazy, but it's, so we've seen this a lot, but Nick's story I think is really important because it, it to me spells out, he's walked the shoes in both lanes. Yeah. And I think that he can attest to, Hey guys, this isn't a joke. It's totally real. It happened to me and it'll ha it would happen to you too, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I, 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 I just feel like that story exemplifies what you're talking about. Yeah. And this goes to show why feminism is a necessity at this point, you know, to kind of like promote this uh, gender equity to also disarm this gender bias that's been happening in the professional setting. And why it's important to have allies, right? So now Nick mm -hmm. is a true ally of women in medicine um, because he can speak to our experience in a way that almost nobody else can. Um, but really, it's important to remember that no change, and this is we're seeing this now with all the protests, right? You don't get change and protests with Black Lives Mattering with only Black Lives Marching, right? And so uh, we're seeing that uh, that advocacy and feminine has fundamentally always been for inclusive allyship uh, around this particular issue, you know, gender equity, but never exclusive to the gender being the only people, the only people that we advocate for. Yeah. Um, and now the fact that we kind of have to discuss this current topic is unfortunate and would not happen in a fair and just society. And obviously you kind of mentioned this, um, the topic I'm referring to is systemic racism and the lack of equity in health. Um, I think you bring up some really great points on your Twitter as well. Uh, and I would love to love it if you can just briefly summarize the things that pre-med students and undergraduates can do to help, maybe through like an adjustment of internal biases. Yeah, so uh, we all have bias, you know, and being anti-racist is not the same thing as being racially blind. Uh, we all know this. And uh, one of the things I think for me is somebody that focused on gender equity was understanding the uh, intersectionality of equity when it came to race and, you know, disability and gender and all these other, uh, you know, identities that somebody has. Um, I try to listen to my friends and colleagues who can, who can help me understand kind of the intersectional experience, but also try to learn as best I can on my own, because it's not necessarily everybody's job to teach me about what it's, look, what it's like to live in shoes that are not mine. Um, but realizing that as medical students and residents and college students, Understanding your own biases and understanding that the system that you have learned in, no matter where it is, was inherently structurally unequal and structurally racist. Like our society is uh, created around a white patriarchy. And it's important to understand that that clouded how we've made all of our decisions, whether it's like yeah. specifically in healthcare, understanding like social determinants of health and realizing that those social determinants, quote unquote, were related to environmental injustices and political decisions that were made you know, after the war, reconstruction, when it happened, like you can go far and far back into hundreds of years of American history to see the healthcare decisions that were made for people. You know, the abolition of slavery introduced all these structural inequities that kept black people unhealthy, which then created a culture to believe that black people were not healthy, right? And so we learned that Black people had different medical problems than white people, and that hypertension and diabetes were expected 
in black bodies as opposed to white bodies. And we didn't understand that that was a function of, you know, hundreds of years of inequity embedded into the system, but into the water and into the food and into the, you know, idea that when you were emancipated from slavery, you were not given funds to support yourself. So when you needed help getting food, the food they gave you was unhealthy and that perpetuated nutritional deficits that were generational. I mean, you could really go on and on about this. And so what is important for students and, and doctors and residents to learn is where that's embedded everywhere we turn and how to start to unpack that and fight for those uh, corrections everywhere. To me, that's the most important thing we can do in this moment. And we're at least coming to a common language if that's a priority. Yeah, as you said, uh, there's layers upon layers of, you know, how far we can kind of dig this through. And the main thing, as you said, was to kind of put things into our recognition that these systemic racisms do exist. And I'm just going to ask uh, a very simple question. This is a question that I'm borrowing from one of my favorite authors, uh, Tim Ferriss. What book or books have you gifted the most? Have I gifted the most? I actually, I don't, you know, do I give books? Um, I should give more books. Um, yeah, no, I don't. If, if, yeah, if not books, maybe I, uh, like a blog post that you visit the most. So, um, right now it's COVID act now and COVID act is strategy, but that's not good. <laughs> I am obsessed with knowing the numbers around the country. The couple podcasts, like I'm very into like six or seven art, six or seven episode narrative podcasts. So uh, this Land, which was incredible, which was a crooked media podcast last year about the fate of native land in Oklahoma and what it meant for criminal justice and more importantly for the rights of uh, Native Americans and Native people. Uh, I listened to that and then the Supreme Court case came out and then I recommended it to like, I don't know how many people. Same thing is true for the 1619 podcast, which again was a, a offshoot of the special edition that happened to the New York Times. I really believe that these kind of like short form podcast series are even better than books in some way because you can pick them up. And so to me, yeah. that would probably be the thing that I recommend the most because it's it's digestible. They are um, informative. They are narrative, which I think that narration is a great way to learn. I The book that I gave out the most in the past year was probably, you know, Becoming by Michelle Obama because I just thought it was amazing. But that's not, that's totally not appropriate as far no, as like I mean, a life. I mean, yeah. maybe it is, but uh <laughs> No, I think you brought up some really good point with with podcasts. You can kind of digest all the information if you're driving to work, listen like on the radio. So that's really great. And um, as per the title of this podcast, Doctors In, let's go through a guided story as a closing remark. I think we're at the end of this session. So let us imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctors In to rest for lunch as the glazing sun is overhead. When it gets cool in the afternoon, you start to get ready to go about your journey of life. Before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, asks you to share one code or piece of advice so that he can frame it on his wall, what would that piece of advice be? It can be something you live your life by. For example, a principle or or an ideology for me is memento mori, which is the reminder of death. So what's one of yours? So I am what I am is probably the most transformative experience of my life. I was in college, I think. Maybe I was in residency um, and maybe medical school. I don't remember. Sometime in my early years, I listened to this ridiculous disco song by a drag queen called I Am What I Am and it, by Gloria Gaynor. It was amazing. It was like, it was the idea that like, you can't, like you have to grow, but you can't 
don't change. You are who you are. I spent a lot of time not leaning into who I was, right? And a lot of what I do, um, whether it's healthcare or entrepreneurship or my family or communicating with the public, uh, I have to be authentically myself. Um, if I'm not, it's exhausting, it's depressing, it's, dis it's, um, it's defeatist, it's unsuccessful, right? And so I very much try to teach my children that you, like, you have to find your space, like who, who you are and know who you are and what drives you. And so I am driven by change. I am driven by people. I am driven by affecting their lives, whether it's advising people right now on how to keep their families safe or um, helping patients in the ER understand what it's like to deal with this virus, or it's helping women in medicine navigate their own individual lives. Um, so, but I am what I am. And if I don't remember who I am, I can't help anybody else. And so that's mine. Staying true to yourself. I think that yeah. is such, like, so well said. Um, but I think this is all networking is very important through you i was able to get in contact with an incredible doctor to partake in a global health initiative that being said if someone in the audience has any questions or interest in volunteering with feminine or the work that you do where can they find you so the best place is actually probably twitter you're totally right i mean i i'm an, i am on twitter an unhealthy amount right now uh and so just you know dm me on twitter or if you can't you can always just kind of like tweet to me and then just say, I've been trying to get to you. Um, info at feminem.org is always open and available. Um, and that's another way to do it. Uh, and then, you know, do good work. I mean, that's the most important thing is that we have, we need an army of people out there right now saving the world because there's a lot of saving to be done. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaz, for being the very first guest of this podcast. I love all that you do. I think you are truly an inspiration. All right. Thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors Inn. All our show notes can be found on our website at www.doctorsinpodcast.com. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye. Bye.